every day, how do you constantly keep improving, constantly look for problems in your business proactively? If you have that mindset, you'll manage the challenges. If you're not really in touch every day and all you want to do is sit in a corporate room because you think you've made it, you will get surprised in a bad way. Hello, this is the Indian Nest Podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together. Every story is unique. And I'm very excited to have Nitin Sahani with us today. He's the CEO and founder of Pharmacord. His company, Pharmacord, is on a torrid pace of growth. And this is his fourth pharma company that he's been involved with. But I invited him on the show as he has a unique window into patient experience. And given the amount of money that the United States spends on healthcare, and in return, the quality of patient care that we receive, I wanted to also discuss with him what can be done to improve that because he has, as I said, a unique perspective to that. Welcome, Nitin. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you, Sanjay. Nitin, you obviously have been in the pharma business, but more importantly, can you just walk us through your journey up until now? Tell us a little bit about where were you born and a little bit about your upbringing, how was it, etc. Sure. And thanks for inviting me, Sanjay. And one of the reasons for doing this is being of Indian origin. So it's important for me. I usually don't get on camera too much to draw any attention to myself. I'm from Dehradun in India, went to a boarding school at the age of five, left a boarding school at the age of 18. So really my experiences in my young age were more in being a well-rounded person than frankly being focused on academics. So after that, I left and worked in Delhi, studied in Punjab University, came to the US in late 80s. And I'm not working within the pharma company, we work in the pharmaceutical industry and biotech, which means we're in the healthcare space of helping patients, et cetera. But we can explain that later. You know, I've had the fortune of working with very exciting companies that have been both publicly traded and private, and frankly, have done nothing unique except, you know, doing what is supposed to be done in healthcare and fortunate enough to be able to do this a couple of times. Well, that's uh, very fascinating. Nitin, as you know, Dehradun is known for Dune School and Vellums and things of that <laughs> nature. What was the, and the reason we do this a little bit is, Nitin, is to really understand what makes change makers like you successful because there is this thing, you know, in, Indians uh, or people of Indian origin have been so successful. What was the reason that you went to boarding school so early? Any specific reason? You know, if you ask my mother, she felt, that being in a joint family would have spoiled me. So I think <laughs> she would tell you the right age would have been 11, but my brother went. <laughs> but I honestly contribute a lot of my learnings to an early age of fending for yourself. Like, you know, what you learn really is how to play with others, how to work in teams. You don't realize it when you're young, or when, you know, you're like in your teens. But I think specifically Vellums and Dune School and Dune School specifically, because, you know, that's later in your teens. I was never top of the class, for example, academically, but was involved in several activities. And fortunately for us in those days, they were focused more on service, how to work in a team, 
how to be able to, you know, not have any pressures of being top of your class. Being in a system, disciplined system, where things work. For example, no one really checked us after the classes. We were supposed to solve our own issues by ourselves between the system of monitors and prefects. I think those things really count later in life. And I felt I was very fortified, frankly, to be more in the U.S. in the system than India itself, because when you leave a very comfortable environment of a doom school, you're not that prepared for the Indian way of doing things. But when you come here, you realize the kind of education you got, not only that, the kindness, good manners, how to communicate, not having the fear to talk to anyone. Those were the things I think you find out later on how lucky we were to be able to get that education. So the boarding school was a very formative thing for you because at least here, you know, because of the public school system in the U.S. and others, there are very few people who go to the boarding school. But you thought that yeah. really played a very significant role, Nitin, in being able to fend for yourself, being independent, work in teams, figure out ways. Yeah, around absolutely. And, and uh, also how to handle affluence. You know, you're surrounded by people from different backgrounds. Most of them happen to be affluent. But I think we were taught not to let that be the main thing. We were 16, for example, who's who. And so I think led a very innocent life where you were not driven by materialism, but you really were driven as an equal system and participant. That's important. Oh, that's fantastic. Your brother also went to a boarding school, uh, Nitin? Yes, my younger brother went to Doon. And I have a lot of cousins, a lot of family <laughs> that went to Doon, okay. yes. My sister went to Wellums, but that's a whole different story. But She will know exactly. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Nitin, so you came here after you went to Punjab University. You came to the mm -hmm. U.S. What was the reason for coming to the U.S.? You know, I worked in India for three years at Blarpur Industries, which was part of the Thapur Group. Frankly, I learned a lot there. In those days, it was a blue chip company. The management training program that I was part of really, really educated me in ways that I'd never imagined. But I also knew in India that you needed an MBA in those days. It was emerging to come back and really have a career in management. When I came here, I had no intentions of actually staying in the US. And you know, everyone will tell you the same story. Mm -hmm. But in those days, India had not fully developed. You know, this is 1987, 88, mm -hmm. and the economy had not opened up. So by the time I graduated, the opportunities in India were not what they were in even late 90s. And the opportunities here were there in front of me. But for the next 10 years, I always thought I'll go back because my mm -hmm. heart has always been in India and Dehradun. You know, you never really, I didn't even pretend. Others pretend that they've become, you know, you can be an American, but you don't ever lose the values and your Indianness, so to speak. So mm -hmm. it took me many years to really reconcile to the fact that this is how it's going to be. And the U.S. has been really good. It's been a perfect system for people like us to come here and be entrepreneurial and do good things. It's a clean system. Actually, it's very well built, if you ask me. And by the way, I couldn't get into really good schools in India. Like, I'm not one of those who could have got into IIT if my life depended on it. You know? <laughs> so we came here more <laughs> than it was easier to come here and study than actually be in the Indian competitive environment, to be honest. I can relate to that. Nitin, so you came here, and then mm -hmm. how did you get into the pharma side of the business? Because your whole career has been in the pharma. It was by default. Again, in the U.S., anytime someone meets an Indian, they think you're a doctor. And I joke with them, we were never that bright to be a doctor. But 
you know, you have these business instincts. So I was, you know, I did my MBA and worked in New York very briefly in finance, got my green card. In those days, you could get that. And came to Columbus, Ohio by default for many other reasons. When I reached Columbus, I had no job. I was placed by a temp agency into a healthcare company called Caremark. So it wasn't really like I was an expert in healthcare. And that was actually a very large, good, well-run company. And I was in my 20s and I learned a lot there. And then I went to Cardinal Health, which was even a bigger healthcare company. But I was more in healthcare from a business point of view on how to make sure that these biotech products that were really emerging and game-changing for different disease states, these all chronic disease states, how to build a business around it. So I was one of the first few people who ventured into that space by accident, not because I was trained to do it, mm-hmm. but I think it comes down to people like us when we see an opportunity, we pour our hearts and souls into it and in a disciplined way, and we enjoy doing what we do. Mm-hmm. And that led to a corporate life of being very fortunate, I would say, of having increasing responsibilities of running a PL. I was a general manager at age 29 of a Fortune 500 company. That led me to start my own company again in healthcare. So it wasn't because, frankly, I'm an expert, but I'm, I would say I'm, I'm a business person who knows how to build businesses in healthcare. You are a business person who knows how to build healthcare because we are always trying to figure out the drivers. Were your parents, uh, were your dad an entrepreneur by any chance? Most of us came from a business family. Okay. But one of the reasons I left India was to escape that system of going and working in a family business. Family. My mother has been a very big part of it. She raised us more as a single parent. And even though we went to good schools, the values that were driven were very much intact. Like always give more than you take. You know, you don't need someone to watch over you. You just do the right thing. That came from my mother, I would say. And even today, if I was to make a decision Many ways, I always think, what would she think? With all these companies I've been involved with, we've never talked about money. Like my mother's never asked me what my salary is or what I did, has never asked me how much did you get for selling a company, you know? So you were really well raised in some ways, not to chase the greed of money, but to really create value and participate in the value creation. Very different. So that came from my mother. I would you know, give her the credit for that. Wow. So when you started your first company, there was no fear, hey, I've never done this before. It's something completely new. I could fall on my face or something like that. That has to do a little bit with our background, but mostly, you know, everyone's different. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the pressure of a typical Dune school guy who went to Harvard Mm -hmm. and had to go to McKinsey and people Mm -hmm. always thought there's a path. People Mm -hmm. like us who were middle of the class if not bottom of the class in Dune, really had no fear. I mean, it's not just me. We worked with no pressure. I really think that was a very big contributing factor. Unlike people who went into engineering schools, had to go to MIT or someone had to go to medical school. My parents never asked me what my grades were in Dune. (laughs) I think those were the few things I look back when you have no fear and you feel this is a fair system in the U.S., I honestly, maybe I wasn't bright enough to think what would happen if something fails. It was just one thing led to and one was grateful for every opportunity you got. So in a way, you're saying that because, again, paraphrasing you, you didn't go into one of these elite schools, whether it's MIT, Stanford, or IIT, in a way, it freed you from 
you know, taking maybe more risks because you, you know, what the heck could have happened. Yes. And I admire those schools. Listen, don't get me wrong. If I could have got into yeah. those schools, I would have loved to. You know, <laughs> I think wow. there was no pressure. Once I left India and I knew I left a very comfortable, affluent family life, I somehow was trained more than I thought to fend for myself and not to make any excuses, not to blame anyone if things, you know, and things all this, not, they don't go right, as you know. Mm-hmm. Whether you start a company or you're in a corporate environment, it comes down to people skills, how you navigate things. Frankly, mm-hmm. I'm lucky enough to say it was very natural to have good conversations like you're having with me. When you're curious about other people, when you're well-read, you can have good conversations. And those things, we didn't realize how much they really mattered. Because whether it's India or US, once you reach the executive suite, you better be interesting. You better be able to hold a conversation. Everyone knows you have to produce financially. So those kind of things came naturally. And hence, there was no fear. You know, we always felt if this thing doesn't work, you can always have a job. And you kept yourself together in terms of low ego, not wanting materialistic things. You know, those were never the things that motivated me personally. So I had no pressure. And I think those were the reasons. So no pressure, no ego. You know, those were some of the things that were really, but also the ability to communicate. Maybe that was a Dune School thing or just what came naturally to you? Able? It to... was both. Indians are good communicators, at least the ones who are generalists. I just feel whether it's India or here, when you go into a profession too early, whether you're a doctor or an engineer or a data scientist, I'm always a big believer, even though I did economics in my undergrad, but it was more of a liberal arts education in Dune, mm-hmm. where you would find me sitting in a library reading a book more than playing cricket, even though I love cricket. Mm-hmm. I think those things about enjoying things that are very simple in life and having a broad-based thinking that carries on. I wouldn't say it's just Dune School. Of course, that allowed me. But you have to be curious about life and how, even as a young person in our family conversations, we were very well read. You know, you knew what was happening in the world those days. You mm-hmm. were healthy debates with friends, having different mm-hmm. opinions. Those were all welcome. So I grew up that way. And I think that really helped. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. You know, because liberal arts is not in a way, it's a dying thing because, you know, as you said, in Indians, we call it the two profession rule, doctors or engineers. So you had a much broader experience. Nitin, from that job to where you came, there were many steps along the way. Can you just walk us through that? You know, because you've been with some big companies, big positions. You're now on the board of several publicly traded companies. So just walk us through a little bit about that journey because it's very fascinating. I will mention a few details because I don't make my own LinkedIn, but it's a good question because this is meant to be helping others and motivating others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a large company, when I joined Cardinal Health, it was a $1 billion market cap company. When I left in eight years, it was 60 billion, not because of me. It grew through acquisitions. Wow. And the business I'd built for them was a $400 million business, which was, by the way, a very big one in a billion dollar company. At age 36, I realized that I was the youngest executive. I would have to wait 10 more years to go and run anything bigger within a company. And it was kind of getting boring, you know. Being a corporate executive is fascinating in terms of learning. And so I decided that I wanted to build my own business if I could raise capital. I resigned. Those days, I could have had, if I'd stayed, I could have had X 
amount of options vested. I never thought about it. And I found an investor in Louisville, Kentucky through a mutual friend who was basically not an, only an investor, but he was in commercial real estate. Okay. And he was not an Indian. And we met. And again, you talk about people, skills, or communications. We hit off really well. Mm. And he asked me, like, what do you think you'll need? So I gave him the amount that it would take to start a company. And we shook hands. And he said, how much do you want out of this company that you want to start? And I gave him an amount. We'd had a handshake deal. I left a very comfortable job with a nine-month-old kid at that time awesome. and moved to Louisville, Kentucky. Really, I mean, you're talking about from scratch. Had the investment, put a team together. That company, by the way, you've read, I don't want to mention you know, financial numbers because it kind of dilutes the conversation, but it was successful financially. And I was still 42 years old by the time we sold it. Wow. <laughs> so, we sold it wow. to a publicly traded company. Then I became part of the publicly traded company. One thing led to the other, and I ended up running that company. And then we sold that publicly traded company to CVS. So things happen not because you had a plan to do this or make. I know everyone says it, but when you focus on a valuation only and you focus on making money, you lose the plot. So my attitude has always been hey, life is already good. And I remember. Someone asked me, like, what if it doesn't work when I went to Louisville? And I said, you know what? The job I left, I have the confidence I can get a job like that. And that was good enough. And so, again, no pressure, raised money, but not debt, and had never really gone independently and run a company. So, you know, you learn a lot. I learned so much by starting a company, selling the company. It's hard enough to start a company, run a company, but it's really hard to sell a company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a whole different level. And Omnicare, wow. when I went in, it was a very, you know, it was a Fortune 500 company that I, I realized the best way for shareholders is to sell the company. You know, it was not my company. My mm -hmm. job was to increase the stock price. So again, knowing what the goals are is very important. Mm -hmm. The goal was not to make it an entrepreneurial company. It was, and the returns were phenomenal. In five, six years, we sold it for a very good valuation. The shareholders were happy. Then when we sold that company, I realized I did not want to work for a large company again and give another five, seven years. So then we started a company called Pharmacord, but with certain conditions, no outside capital. We'll use our own capital, which allows us to put the right team in place to build our technology platform in the same space, by the way. It's not like mm. we've innovated anything. We just feel we're more efficient. We do things better. And that was enough of a delta to create value. And now in six and a half years, this company from scratch, again, starting in one room, is 1,200 people. It is multiples of EBITDA. I won't mention how much, mm -hmm. but it is the fastest growing healthcare company, according to private equity, in healthcare that is independent in the US. So again, you know what it was? It was putting the right system in place, the right executives, not working as a founder owner mentality, but running it like a publicly traded company where people feel it's fair and having enough equity for others where they feel you're part of the team, you're not treated as a second class executive, you know, having the ability to share, to include mm -hmm. people, to build three levels below comes by, you know, putting the right system in place. It's the learnings from the first two or three that went into Pharmacord, and here we are in six and a half years as I would say, well-built company that is not even halfway through the journey of where we should be. So that's kind of the story. Unbelievable. 
But Nitin, along the way, there must have been challenges too, right? It can't have been just, I mean, of course, it's a fantastic journey. So how did you deal with those challenges? Because, you know, people listening to you, obviously, it's a very inspirational thing, but they also want to, they deal with challenges. So how do you deal with challenges? Does your... You know, it's a very transparent system. You have to work with the team. You know, again, if people who are going to be running companies or on the executive ranks, what I would tell them is don't waste your 30s and 40s with trying to build a lifestyle. You have to build value wherever you go by surrounding yourselves with good people, really leading a simple personal life so that you don't have pressures at home, that you have to live in a certain house. Those things happen naturally if they have to happen. So removing the pressure from yourself, making sure that you're not dictated by how others think about you, the power of indifference, as they say, working with people who are with those same value system. When you have that, then when the challenges come, for example, getting business, no matter how mm -hmm. many times you do it and how well people know you, when you get your first contract, people don't, mm -hmm. you know, they're taking a risk by giving it to a startup company. How to go without pressure and talk to those people and not view it as, hey, I've had this track record and these successes, you should just come to us. You have to constantly show to your clients what is the value that you can. And they're willing to bet with you once they know you well enough that you're going to do everything not to fail them. For example, I still tell our clients, by the way, we have a world-class team out here now of executives that we have worked with in various combinations from last four companies. They could have gone anywhere. Attracting people that are not fascinated about an outcome financially, but they're fascinated by outcome reputationally. Very important, very, very key difference. So if you're mm -hmm. built that way, you can face the challenges. Challenges of getting business, challenges of making sure that the people challenges that come along, operational challenges every day. But you see, that's your job. Part of running a business is nine out of 10 times, you're going to be solving puzzles and problems. But if you're comfortable doing it, then that DNA is such that you know that the journey in the end is going to be fine. But if you put too much pressure where every time you're thinking, my gosh, I'm going to fail, or if I don't get this contract, what's going to happen? And again, I know it's not being idealistic, but at least for me and the people that have, I've surrounded myself, it's worked. It's worked for 30 years. I don't want to talk about others, but I find there's so much pressure on people when they do well. They have to live a certain way. They're judged in society by, you know, what their titles are. You know, I find so many of my Indian friends more fascinated about this span of control they're managing in a large company. And I tell them, man, your 40s and 50s, take some risk. I'm not yeah. saying go start a company, but go to a startup, go to a company that is small, and you'll find out you just can't create value in mature companies. So you have to have a certain mindset. And you can then deal with the challenges. Challenges every day. I'm sitting here, the challenges as we speak of 1,200 people, we're adding another 500 by end of the year. You have to hire them, train them, put management over it. Business will come. Are you ready for business? You know, people always think it's a demand issue. It really isn't. It's an execution issue. Every day, how do you constantly keep improving, constantly look for problems in your business proactively? If you have that mindset, you'll manage the challenges. If you're not really in touch every day and all you want to do is sit in a corporate room because you think you've made it, you will get surprised in a bad way. And I think those are some of the lessons I would like to share that have worked for us. Well, those are excellent points. If you're in your 30s and 40s, take risks, but 
lead a simple lifestyle, surround yourself with some phenomenal people, and don't hide yourself in a corporate room. Be amongst the people. And don't get fascinated by titles. Don't get don't fascinated. Don't value yourself by, you know, what your Indian friends on a weekend thing, how you're doing. Don't get into the competitive <laughs> side of, you know, oh my gosh, this guy's bought this. Those are distasteful things. I mean, I say simple life, you can live any way you want to, but have your simple thinking. Don't, don't trade away so much of your intellect by, you know, measuring yourself by how you live and how you travel and all that. That's what I mean by simplicity. That's an excellent point. A lot of our guests, Nitin, talk about the role of mentors, their career. Now, obviously, you seem like you've mentored hundreds and hundreds of people, but have there been mentors along your journey too, Nitin? I hope you don't take it as an arrogant thing, but I was never lucky enough to have a mentor. Oh, my God. Because think about this. When I went to Cardinal Health, it was a holding company. I mean, they just mm-hmm. said, here's your PNL, produce. Very different. There was no time for anyone. That was the way it was in those days. Then when we started our own company, I was the person in charge. There was really, I would say the investor who's a good friend of mine, who still is an investor in this company, who's 81 years old, my best friend, mm-hmm. his name is Jim. I would say closely, he could be a mentor in the sense I asked for his advice all the time. But no one sat down and said, here's how you do it. Here's what you have to avoid. I wish I had that. I think I would have been a better person. So I really do believe. Not even the board. Not even even the board members or anybody, uh, Nathan. So here's the thing: RX Crossroads, the company I started, never had a board because we owned it. When yeah. we went to Omnicare, it had a board, and you had to report. There was a governance structure. No problem doing it. But the board does not mentor you. They have the governance structure. Then wow. when we started Pharmacord, we owned it. There's no board of Pharmacord. <laughs> I'm just giving you an idea. So it's hard to believe, like, you know, for example, this company has zero debt. So even the banks don't even call you. We don't even have a line of credit. So (laughs) we have kept it so pure that somehow we lost the plot in terms of, hey, we should be mentored. Of course, there's room for mentoring, you know, and there's room for learning. That's true. That is true. Do you think that would have helped you quite a bit if you had some mentors along the way? It depends. Mentors have to be so unselfish. Mentoring, and that's what I do with people, is it's not just trying to find a job for someone or place them. It is truly taking the time to understand them, their families, being really invested both emotionally and personally. Then only can you really help someone navigate. So for example, I have most of the people that I mentor have never worked with me. So it has to be pure. You can't mentor someone so that you can use them. Okay. So when you take that approach, it has to be a very pure relationship. So I'm fortunate enough, if you ask me, mm-hmm. that I would say there are 20, 30 executives and maybe 30, 40 young people in this company. But I take the time when I sit with the young people here in Pharmacord, I tell them not a single sentence will be about Pharmacord, as an example. Mm-hmm. It's about you and me. I want to mm-hmm. make sure that you're fortified so you can leave Pharmacord. Someday you want to leave Pharmacord to do better somewhere. So use Pharmacord. If you took the approach as a mentor, CEO, you won't be saying that. So I think it's a very pure, very, it's a humbling experience. You have such responsibility to keep it pure. So I know Mm -hmm. what it is to mentor. I wish I had the same thing in my younger days. I don't know. I'm sure it would have helped in many ways. I hear your point. I wanted to ask you and 
you mentioned that you really are not in pharma, but you do have a perspective on patient care. And this is Absolutely. really, you know, we spend, I don't know, 15% of our GDP or something like that on mm -hmm. healthcare. I mean, you know that. 17%, yeah. 17%. So, but the quality of patient care maybe is not in line with what I mm -hmm. would say we spend. What is the reason if you were to look, I mean, you have spent your entire career from a business. And sure. Others. If you were to just give a very brief view, because I have some, a few other questions and I know you have a So you're absolutely that. right. There's a lot of wastage. So mm -hmm. if you look at the four Ps, right? Pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. providers, which mm -hmm. is like, for example, physician offices. Mm -hmm. You look at payers, insurance companies, mm -hmm. and patients. Even today in the United States, the data does not go across all four, as an example. Mm -hmm. All four of them work as separate healthcare sectors. You know, when you look at other, you know, it's unfair to compare it to Europe, for example, where the population is 11 million, for example, in Sweden, mm -hmm. or four and a half million in Denmark. Mm -hmm. So 350 million people that are part of, you know, with Obamacare. I would say we have enough money in the system, for example, to have free healthcare for everyone, to have discounted pricing on you know, I think your question about biotech, pharmaceutical products, but we are not efficient. And we are not efficient because in some ways, we like government not interfering as capitalists. But on the other hand, you know, the largest payer in the US is Medicare. So mm -hmm. the government actually is the biggest reimbursement for most of the people. They've never put a structure in place how to negotiate the right kind of service, et cetera, for patients, because that would entail another huge department of magnitude to be able to do that. So I think there are many reasons we don't have the right tort laws. Today, you have physicians spending most of their money trying to have insurance, for example, so that they don't get sued. Hmm. You've got hospitals that are very inefficient because they have to, in some cases, take 30%, 40% of the patients don't, can't pay. So then hmm. they start charging those of us with insurance. Hmm. You had asked a question, I think, earlier also, why are biotech pharmaceutical products 10 times more expensive than Europe or India? The reason is the innovation takes place here. A typical mm -hmm. biotech product costs billions of dollars of research and manufacturing. But when you go to Europe or you go to Canada or you go to India, it's a little bit different. They don't get the same pricing from there because the governments have caps on it. Mm -hmm. So United States is the only market where they can recover the investment. Yeah. And that's why the prices are high. So we are paying, we are the R&D for the world, basically. We are the R&D for the world. We are the markets for the world. Take mm -hmm. top 10 biotech companies. Seven of them are not even U.S. headquartered. But they're 60% of the sales or 70% in the United States. That's true. So that's one of the reasons. Obviously, it's a longer discussion yeah. to go into this part of it. Uh, that's a longer discussion. Nitin, you've done so much. I mean, listening to you, you probably have done what more people do in maybe two or three lifetimes. But where do you see your journey going from here? It seems like you still have, I see a lot more, but I would love to hear what, where do you see your You journey? know, I'm thinking through it, Sanjay. This is, I'm contemplating that as we speak. Okay. My philosophy in life is one should always plan your exit before others plan for you. Now, fortunately, I've been in those situations where legally, I'm the only one who can plan my exit. But I see such talent. For example, I think if I was to do this for several more years, I'll get a new CEO. Not because we need one, but I feel you need the next generation person 
who can completely dedicate himself or herself mm-hmm. to take this company to another level. There's no one to tell me. You know, there's no board, not even shareholders from outside, except for one friend that I have that is a minority shareholder. So you have to then take the approach of responsibility. Right. This could be 5,000 jobs in three years. How to put mm-hmm. a structure? So I'm thinking through those things. But frankly, I have no idea what, what I would do if I was not operating. So well, you'll, be doing something about, very, you'll be doing something very interesting. I'm oh, absolutely. Percent. Listen, I'm a boring person. I don't even know how to play golf. I live on a <laughs> golf course. Right? <laughs> and this, so I have a simple You're not a golfing but, kind person, believe me. No. I, I no. want to be interacting, making a difference in people's lives. Good how time. I do it, I haven't figured that out beyond business today. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully soon. Uh, yeah. Nitin, if you were to have a conversation of with Nitin, who is 20 years old, what would you be saying to him? Just go back to that time. What I would say is that what you've learned at 20, like, for example, when I came to the U.S., the first seven, eight years were pretty ruthless. And part of it is I always believed you can go to any institution, and I still do. You don't have to go to the top tier institutions. I wish in those days I'd listened to others. Like I could have gone to Carnegie Mellon, for example. And I think I would have learned a lot more. You know, listen, my education at Punjab University in Dune fortified me. But frankly, going to a good graduate school, for example, and aiming for it and studying a little bit towards that, I think would have made me even more well-rounded in the U.S. system. So I had to go through a little bit more longer journey, even though I did things in my 20s. I think that would have helped. I think when I look back at 20, I was much more idealistic. You're 20, you know, you're still a baby. You know, you're still maturing. In hindsight, I should have not left India, if you ask me. I still have the love for India. Really? You know, sometimes I wonder if, I, if I'd if i been there in the late 90s and 2000. I'm not even talking about money. I think India is a much more difficult place to do business in some ways. But if you ask me, it's not a regret, but a 20-year-old would have not left India. And we're talking now more hypothetically, you know. That's a surprise. You know, do a master's in Carnegie potentially and not leave India. That's very interesting. And uh, listen, I love the U.S. Don't get me wrong. It's a perfect system. Yeah, I know. I'm totally assimilated. I know. I love the freedom here. But I'm mm-hmm. just telling you, you know, yeah. I wish I had done more in India in some ways. I still have that feeling, uh, not as a charity. India doesn't need people like us. But, you know, if we could do it here, maybe, you know, there's an opportunity to work in some ways to... In healthcare, for example. I don't know. For that, that you need cha- a lot That of chapter time. is not over yet, uh, Nitin. I hope so. so. I hope oh, it's it is still not, there. I don't know. Uh, it is still there. But now, so, Nitin, we do have a rapid or a lightning round of questions. And since we are coming to the end, yeah. your definition of Indianness, now you have kind of defined it in this conversation, but yeah. I want to hear it from you because we ask that to everybody. It is, to me, it is your roots. It's a simple mm-hmm. question. It's we your have transplants out here. Keep your roots. Mm-hmm. That's Indianness. Wow. Okay. Nitin, a person either of Indian origin or person in India that living, not your family, that you admire. We ask that to everybody too. You know, there's so many of them. Uh, I would still a, say no, right now, mm-hmm. you, you want a brand name or you want just anyone? No, I'd just say any, your choice, Nitin. Just not your I, family. I, I would say my ex-headmaster in Doom School. That wrote my first letter for my first job in India, who's no more. What was his name, Nitin, if you don't mind? His name was Gulab Ramchandani. Gulab Ramchandani. Well, that's a great, 
great suggestion, great suggestion. Now, since you brought up uh, the point of cricket, I'm going to just sneak in one last one. Your favorite cricketer. Sunil Gavaskar. Sunny. Old fashioned way. Yeah, Sunny. Sunny, Sunny. Great cricketer. I've great, quite a few, uh, but you asked me for one, so I name one. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I know we are running up against time, but I've kept it two minutes before. This has really been very, very enlightening and very, very helpful. And thanks for being so candid and so open. And I'm hoping a lot of our listeners will learn a lot from you. And hopefully they'll reach out to you in some cases. But real pleasure. Thanks, Nitin, for being on the thanks podcast. Thanks for the opportunity, Sanjay. Really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.